Chapter 12 of Hellenic History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emanuela. Hellenic History by George William Botsford. The Age of the War Heroes. First, political and economic. 479-461 A retrospect of the war. For an appreciation of the Persian War and of its effect on subsequent history, let us first inquire what was at stake in the conflict. What would have resulted had Persia won the battles of Salamis and Plataea? the war would by no means have ended, for there were Greek communities that would have shed their last drop of blood in the fight for freedom. Of that fact, Thermophile gave evidence. But what if in the end Persia had conquered? A costly undertaking it would have been to hold Peninsula Hellas in subjection. The linear tribute, the heavy debit column of the Hellenic satrap, might soon have expelled the conqueror. However that may be, the permanent occupation of Greece would doubtless have been a calamity to civilization. Although Greeks and Persians were alike of Indo-European speech, there could have been no considerable racial element common to the two peoples. Through the influence of environment, the Persians were becoming essentially oriental. Originally a fresh viral race of mountaineers, they rapidly submitted to the culture of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. It was a question, therefore, whether the Hellenes should be brought more or less directly under Babylonian influence. The half-century of Oriental domination over Ionia has been offered as evidence that Hellenism prospered under such conditions. In answer, it may be said, that fifty years are but a brief season in the life of a people, and that in truth the cultural glory of Asiatic Hellas has largely passed away before the Battle of Plataea. The fact remains unshaken that in Hellas the existence of city-states, free in government and unhampered in their mutual friendships and rivalries, was essential to any considerable cultural progress. Shall Orientals or Greeks dominate Europe? While granting that battles are but a part, perhaps the merely superficial manifestation, of a larger conflict of minds and of economic, social and political forces, we must maintain that the struggle in its broadest, deepest sense involved the question whether Orientals or Greeks should dominate the civilization of Europe whether that continent was to pursue an independent development or become a mere appanage of Asia. The result, all decisive and infinitely more far-reaching than the contemporary Hellenists dreamed of, signified that it lay in their hands to determine for the future the cultural progress of the world. Religious Effects of the War The first conscious effect of the unexpected 
overwhelming success was religious, the punishment of the invaders for their sacrilege. There awaited them disaster's deepest death, requiring insolence and godless pride. For these, to Hellas coming, did not fear to tear down statues, burn the fanes of gods. Altars had vanished, harlot in ruined heaps, God's temples from their basements are upheaved. Therefore do these ill-doers suffer seals, not less, and some are yet to come, not yet. The dregs of war are wretched, the cup brims still, so you just slaughter, oozing swath shall load, Plateas soil, reaped by the Dorian spear. Religious Effects on Art, Literature and Thought The success of a few Hellenists over that vastly superior force could have but one explanation. The might of God is above theirs, and often, in the midst of evils, it raises up the helpless even when clouds of perplexing distress hang over his eyes. This wave of religious devotion checked for a time the growth of scepticism, and with the spoils of war, gratefully erected to the gods richer and more beautiful temples than Hellas had known before, and adorned them with the sacred sculptures. In literature, the same spirit found no less worthy expression in Aeschylus, whose dramas lift Hellenic religion to a loftier and holier plane, and in Herodotus, who records the great events of the Persian Wars with a profoundly religious awe. Effects on Government The conflict left an effect, too, on government. As freedom had won, it was inevitable that she should grow and thrive for her success. In West and East, tyrannies and oligarchies gave way to democracy, and democratic constitutions took on more popular forms. Victory brought her spell also on Hellenic interstate politics. It was a noble thought, born of the Battle of Plataea, that Hellas should form a grand everlasting federation, at peace with herself and exercising her weapons against none but foreigners. But the common foe was too badly beaten, and Hellenic particularism was too strong for the dream to come true. The consciousness of Russian unity grew, interstate politics, developing beyond its narrow cantonal beginnings, became world politics. The Hellenists took their place as the dominant power in the Mediterranean basin. But after a time, the feuds and rivalries, hushed by the great peril, broke out afresh, and while stimulating cultural activity, gradually separated the strength of the nation. Heroization of the victors one of the most obvious effects of the war was the heroism of the victors. What were the deeds of Achaeans round the Troy compared with the prowess of Marathon and Salamis and Plataea, where a few patriots, relying on the gods and their own valor, had trampled on the strength of the mightiest of empires? They were demigods who fell at Thermopylae, where, 
as their epitaph informed the visitor, theirs was a fair famed lot, and envied death, their tomb a shrine. Instead of tears was a remembrance of their deeds, in place of lamentation, glory. Demigods, too, were those who survived, in proud consciousness of their own strength, to work out a nobler destiny for their race. As time elapsed, the memory of their achievements brightened, till the entire conflict radiated a superhuman glory. A patriot of the fourth century wrote, Methinks the war must have been contrived by some god, in admiration for their bravery, that men of such quality might not remain obscure or end their lives in humble state, but might be deemed worthy of the same rewards as those sons of heaven whom we call demigods. For even their bodies, the deity rendered up to the unyielding laws of nature, but immortalized the memory of their valor. The future of the Hellenic League the immediate problem confronting Greece had to do with the Hellenic Federation formed for the defense against Persia. It was to continue, but under what government and organization? Naturally, the Spartans expected to retain the leadership, for theirs was the strongest military power in Hellas. To their command, a majority of the Hellas had long been accustomed, and although in the recent war the initiative and the enthusiasm came from Athens, the Peloponnesian League, Sparta's creation, had formed the backbone of resistance to the invader. These circumstances determined that at least for the immediate future, Lacedaemon should remain at the head of the League. The Condition of Lacedaemon for a long time, however, changes had been taking place in that state which were rendering the Spartans unfit for this great function. It is true that the area of their country was considerably larger and the population greater than that of any other Greek state. Two-thirds of the people, however, were serfs, who, far from rendering appreciable service in war, were so ill-willed as constantly to menace the general safety. The Perieci were still loyal, but dependent on their own hands, for a livelihood they could give little time to military training, and could serve only in limited numbers, while their inferior status inevitably rendered them less willing for duty whereas the number of Helots and Perieci probably remained unimpaired, that of the Spartans steadily shrank. Economic and Political Decline Under the crushing economic restraints described in an earlier chapter, many men were so impoverished as to forfeit their civic rights together with their place in the army. Sooner or later, therefore, the Spartans were destined to lose their military preponderance. Equally fatal to the stability of their leadership was the continued decline in culture and intelligence, 
while many of their allies were already vastly superior in these respects and were still rapidly progressing the question as to the fortification of athens it was mainly with a view to centralizing the lacedaemonian power that the ephors requested the athenians after the return of the population from exile not to rebuild their walls but to join rather with the spartans in raising the fortifications of all hellenic cities outside peloponnesus should the persians again invade greece they argued the isthmian rampart would be the best possible defence had athens and the other extra peloponnesian cities thus become dependencies of sparta the political unification of hellas might at this early time have been realized yet at a tremendous cost to civilization the crisis was met by the wily themistocles while the athenians were rebuilding their wall in the manner described below he went as envoy to sparta where by a succession of adultuous falsehoods he delayed the action of the ephors until the substantial completion of the defence thus his promptness snatched the most vital interest of his city even from the hazard of debate in the hellenic council the question of protecting the asiatic greeks another question only second in its consequences which pressed for settlement on the morrow of the victory at Mycale, was the liberation of the asiatic greeks from the yoke of persia having failed in their own effort they now rested their hopes of independence in the mighty federation of the european kin spokesmen of the ionians coming to the hellenic headquarters at samos four hundred and seventy nine pleaded for admission into the league for rescue and protection from persia for the maintenance of their freedom after it should be won a permanent fleet in the aegean and perhaps strong garrisons for the cities would be required and the lacedaemonians lacked both the means and the will for carrying such a burden they proposed therefore to expel from their homes the european greeks who had medized and to transplant the asiatic hellenes to the lands thus vacated to the latter folk a migration would have been an insupportable hardship and santippus and his colleagues the commanders of athenian force would not listen to the proposal these greeks are our colonists they protested in substance and we stand ready to give them the desired protection the lacedaemonians gladly shifted the burden to the shoulders of the athenians whose commanders thereupon entered into close relations of a friendship and alliance with the deputies of their unions this was the small beginning of a union which afterwards developed into the delian confederacy the transfer of the naval leadership from lacedaemon to athens 478 still clinging to the naval leadership lacedaemon in the following year sent out a fleet of fifty triremes 
under the regent Pausanias. Thirty of these ships were Athenian, commanded by Aristides and other generals, and the maritime allies added their squadrons. After a partial conquest of Cyprus, Pausanias sailed to the Hellespont and laid siege to Byzantium, then occupied by a Persian garrison. The fall of the city reopened the strait to the importation of grain from the Pontus. During the siege, Pausanias arrogantly treated the Elis as inferior to the Spartans, subjecting them to severe punishments and driving them with whips. Meanwhile, the courtesy and gentleness of Aristides and his colleagues won their affection, till finally they revolted against the tyrant and placed themselves under Athenian leadership. Pausanias was recalled, and eventually the Lacedaemonians yielded the naval command to Athens early in 477. They saw no advantage to themselves in continuing the war with Persia, nor had they a commander whom they could trust abroad. They felt, too, that Athens was competent to the task and friendly to themselves, so that, while she performed for them a disagreeable but necessary function, they would remain, in fact, leaders of Hellas. Fitness of the Athenians for Leadership it was an enterprise which the Athenians were eagerly awaiting. They had been the soul of the Hellenic War of Freedom. Their success had given them self-confidence and ambition. In contrast with the sluggish conservatism of Peloponnese, they now displayed a bold radicalism and a marvelous adaptability to new conditions. Although their territory was far smaller than that of Sparta, the creation of a great fleet had given scope to the naval service of the poorest class and had rendered the whole male population of military age available for war. Their navy, too, was at hand, ready for the very object which now presented itself. Organization of the Delian Confederacy 477. As a representative of Athens, Aristides arranged a treaty of offensive and defensive alliance with the maritime Greeks. Casting masses of iron into the sea, they swore to remain faithful to their obligations till this metal should rise and float on the surface. The allies, on their part, agreed to render the money contributions and perform the required services, while the Athenians swore to maintain unimpaired the constitutions of individual communities. The independence of a Greek state consisted essentially in 1. the right to live under whatever government it pleased, 2. the right to enter into relations of war, peace, and alias with others. A congress of deputies from Elis was to meet under Athenian presidency at the sanctuary of the Delian Apollo to deliberate on the welfare of the League. As the seat of an amphictyony still in existence, 
Delos was to be the center of the new political union, while the temple of the god was to serve as a repository of the confederate funds. The new union, however, was patterned not so much after the Amphictyony as after the Peloponnesian League. In one respect, it marked a great advance upon the latter institution, whereas the Peloponnesians, depending mainly upon land forces, had little need of a common treasury, the confederacy of Delos required a permanent fleet, which necessitated a system of regular taxation. This new element made possible a centralization of power and a consequent efficiency wholly unknown to the Peloponnesian League. The Tribute Aristides was commissioned to apportion the burden. Evidently, he first calculated that a fleet of 200 Trurimis would have to be maintained during the seven months of naval campaigning from March to October. As the crew of a Trurimi numbered about 200, and the pay at this time was evidently two obols a day, the total cost of maintaining the armament would be slightly exceed 460 talents. Necessarily, some campaigns would be longer, but on the other hand, the entire force of 200 ships would rarely be required. Shorter and lesser campaigns would leave a balance that could be applied to the building and repair of ships. Aristides, accordingly, set the entire cost of maintaining the fleet at 460 talents, which he apportioned among the allies according to their several capabilities. The larger states, as Athens, Lesbos, Chios, Samos, Nexos and Thaos, were to bear their share by furnishing ships with their crews. The smaller states in general, finding it inconvenient to build and keep Trurimis, were permitted to pay money instead. All, however, were equally free and were represented in the Delian Congress. The treasurers, as well as the presidents of the Congress and the chief admirals of the navy, were Athenians. The work of assessment required great labor and travel, and still more patience, probity, and tact. It was accomplished to the satisfaction of all. For as the ancients celebrated the age of Kronos, the Athenians' allies held in memory the taxation of Aristides. It seems to have been this achievement which earned for him the title of the just. Expansion of the Confederacy, 479-468 The work of expanding the Confederacy fell chiefly to Simon, son of Milciades. Under his command, it progressed steadily through successive years. After expelling the Persians from their remaining positions on the coasts of the Aegean Sea, in 468, he sailed with 200 ships of war along the Carian Elysian seaboard, bringing the coast people, both Greeks and foreigners, into the confederacy. At the mouth of the Eurymedon, he met and defeated a great Phoenician fleet. Then, 
landing he routed a persian army and seized its camp enormous spoils were the reward of victory the persian hope of regaining lost ground maintained to this time now vanished tacitly the athenians were acknowledged masters of the aegean sea fortification of athens four hundred and seventy nine meanwhile great changes were taking place at athens on their return from exile toward the end of forty seventy nine the athenians had found their walls demolished and the city in ruins their first care as explained above was the rebuilding of the fortifications on which their independence rested the advice of the spartans to desist they set at naught and applied themselves men women and children with feverish haste to the work the foundations are made up of all sorts of stones in some places unwrought and laid just as each worker brought them there were many columns too taken from tombs and many old stones already cut inserted in the work the structure was about six and a half feet in width and perhaps sixteen feet high strengthened at intervals with towers it was a modest defence yet sufficient against the crude siege engines of those times the entire circuit of little less than four miles included a larger space than had hitherto been enclosed the form remained routely a wheel with the acropolis for a hub thinking that this height would still be used as a citadel themistocles began the improvement of its defences in this work he applied the maple drums of the projected athena temple to increasing the height and steepness of a part of the northern rim these fortifications were due to his initiative and cleverness supported by the patriotic energy of all the citizens their leader had incurred the deadly hatred of sparta but the freedom of their city was now secure homes of gods and men the athenians had as yet no resources for rebuilding their temples for the present temporary dwellings for the gods had to suffice while their own homes were mostly small rude cabins of sun-dried bricks hastily erected on the old sides along the narrow crooked unpaved lanes which served as streets in appearance this city was that of a numerous but impoverished population showing little evidence of the vitality the artistic taste or the versatile resourcefulness which were soon to place athens in the forefront of hellenic politics and civilization the building and fortification of piraeus four hundred and seventy eight no sooner had the athenians resumed their daily life in their new-built homes then themistocles persuaded them to undertake a still greater work at piraeus nothing there any more than athens had survived the persian devastation first of all dockyards had to be provided for the enormous fleet 
these two were only provisional. The walls, on the other hand, for the protection of the new city, soon to grow up about the Piraeus harbours, were to be massive and enduring. An account of the work is given by Thucydides. Themistocles also persuaded the Athenians to finish Piraeus, of which he had made a beginning in his year of office as Archon. The situation of the place, which had three natural havens, was excellent, and now that the Athenians had become sailors, he thought that a good arbor would greatly contribute to the extension of their power. For he first dared to say that they must make the sea their domain, and he lost no time in laying the foundations of their empire. By his advice, they built the wall of such a width that two wagons carrying the stones could meet and pass on the top. This width may still be traced at Piraeus. Inside, there was no rubble or mortar, but the whole wall was made up of large stones hewn square, which were clamped on the outer face with iron and lead. The height was not more than half what he had originally intended. He had hoped, by the very dimensions of the wall, to paralyze the designs of an enemy, and he thought that a handful of the least efficient citizens would suffice for its defense, while the rest might man the fleet. His mind was turned in this direction, as I conceive, from observing that the Persians had met with fewer obstacles by sea than by land. Piraeus appeared to him to be of more real consequence than the upper city. He was fond of telling the Athenians that if they were hard-pressed, they should go down to Piraeus and fight the world at sea. The entire circuit following the windings of the shore was about seven miles. The mouths of the arbors were narrowed by moles surrounded by towers, and could be closed in time of danger. The laborers, a keep of the navy. As there were at this time few slaves and fewer aliens in Athens, most of the work must have been done by Thetis. In 478, the year in which we may place the beginning of the enterprise, only thirty true reams had put to sea, leaving available the greater part of the poorest class. For this labor, too, we may assume a daily compensation of two obols. Many who would have sought rural employment must have gathered at the port town, drawn by the opportunity of work, and have built their cabins there. The population, therefore, rapidly increased. To attract mythics, Themistocles carried a decree which exempted them from the usual sojourner's tax. Their capital and their skilled hands were needed in the development of industry and in the building of ships. For not satisfied with their already powerful navy, the Athenians, on the motion of Themistocles, resolved to add twenty new reams a year, not like the existing ones, but of a more recent and improved type. 
here too we mark the devotion of the citizens to the interest of the state in their willingness to forego the comforts of private life and the pleasures of festivals and of art for the sake of increasing the political power part of the money for the purpose came from the mines of laurium reopened after the war and the part was supplied by the sale of booty workmen found further employment in the construction of merchant ships for private owners and in the various industries now beginning in time Piraeus, thus founded by themistocles became one of the most flourishing centres of industry and commerce in the mediterranean world liturgies first Correja, second gymnasiarchia third estiasis in this age probably in connection with the naval measures above mentioned the duty of commanding a trireme was placed among the liturgies expensive public services performed without compensation by those citizens who were financially qualified members of the highest property class were liable to the captaincy of a ship and it was necessary if required to serve in alternate years the state furnished the hull with a few equipments and expected the captain to pay for the rest and for the training of the crew and to keep the vessel in good condition among the other liturgies established in earlier time were the duty first of equipping the chorus for dramatic and other festivals which required it second of paying the expenses of torch races at various festivals third of feasting one's tribesmen each of these duties passed in a cycle according to tribes among those who were liable and the mark of the public-spirited citizens was to spend far more on his liturgy than the state required rural economy and the olive industry it was not only the building and fortification of the two cities that demanded the attention of the government the rural districts too had suffered from the war the persians had burned farmhouses as well as country sanctuaries and had cut down vines and olive trees conquerors however are milled compared with envious neighbours and are disposed to spare a country which is to become their own next to the rebuilding of desolate homes the first thought of themistocles on the morrow of the battle of salamis had been for the restoration of agriculture though no record has been left we may be sure that on his initiative the council of the aeropagus bent its energies to the restoration of farm buildings vineyards and olive groves we know that this body enforced minute regulations for the preservation of olive trees and even of stumps which readily produced fruit-bearing shoots the statement of herodotus that attic alone produced the olive is doubtless exaggerated yet we may well believe 
that she alone exported oil in considerable quantities and that she attempted a monopoly of the trade. An exhaustless market was Italy, where few olives were grown till long after the period now under consideration. The exportation was but slightly interrupted by the war. Imports In exchange, Athens imported grain, pork, Sicilian cheese, other food products of various kinds, Etruscan metalwork, and ornamental slippers. From Carthage came tapestries and gaily wrought cushions. Here, too, we discovered the hand of Themistocles, busily fostering commerce and political relations with the Hellenic West. With that end in view, he cultivated the friendship of Acarnania and Corsira, which lay in the trade route to Italy. Under his policy, Athens took the place once occupied by Calchis and Eretria in this field of commerce, and her coins rapidly crowded out competitors. Alliances with the Hellenic cities of the West were being formed, and his devotion to that part of Hellas he named one daughter Sibaris and another Italia. Trade was by no means limited to the West. Athens had to import two-thirds of her grain supply. It came from her allies, from Italy, Sicily, Egypt and Pontus, whereas great quantities of vegetables were supplied by Megara and Beozia. These imports are mentioned as items of the wide and varied commerce fostered by the policy of Themistocles. Hellenic Statesmanship of Themistocles in every direction, we come upon evidence of his broad, far-seeing statesmanship. His high place in Hellenic politics and his reputation for wisdom and integrity are indicated by the fact that in these times, Corinth and Corsira chose him to arbitrate a dispute between them. The case was decided in favor of the latter. At the next Olympic Games, says Plutarch, when Themistocles entered the stadium, the spectators took no further notice of all those who were contesting for the prizes, but spent the whole day in looking at him, pointing him out to strangers and applauding him by clapping their hands and other expressions of joy, so that he himself, much gratified, admitted to his friends that he then reaped the fruit of all his labours for the Greeks. Increasing control of Athens over her allies. It was clear not only to Themistocles but to other statesmen that the political and economic greatness of their city was to rest chiefly upon their command of the Delian Confederacy. They were determined, therefore, to maintain it at all cost and to strengthen their control over it. In this field, Aristides and Simon were especially active. There were in the Confederacy, after the Battle of Eurymedon, more than 200 city-states, all nominally equal and entitled to representation in the Congress. But they varied immensely in importance, from insignificant towns, occupying a few square miles of territory, to larger states, such as Chios and Naxos, 
thanks to the vastly greater power of Athens. They spoke various dialects and were widely scattered over islands and coasts. Under these circumstances, and with their slight experience in federal government, actual equality was impossible. Most of the allies, too, were disinclined to military service, and some who had originally furnished ships persuaded the Athenians to accept money contributions instead, depriving themselves thus of the means of self-defense they readily fell into the condition of subjects. From time to time they neglected to render the tribute, which in such cases had to be collected by force. For the Athenians were exacting and oppressive, using coercive measures towards men who were neither willing nor accustomed to work hard. When a state revolted, lacking both the training and the equipment for war, it was easily subdued. Revolt of Naxos, 469 More formidable was the revolt of a state which continued to supply a naval force. The first to take this step was Naxos. We may assume that the motives were of a general nature, especially the Greek love of absolute independence for the city-state and the delusion that, as the Persian had been pushed back from the Aegean region, the Confederacy had fulfilled its mission and might profitably be dissolved. Athens, however, promptly crushed the revolt by force, dismantled the walls of the rebellious city, confiscated her fleet, imposed an annual tribute, and deprived her of a freedom. It was the duty of Athens, as the executive, to maintain the integrity of the league and to compel every state to bear its obligation. She violated her oath, however, in depriving an ally of freedom. In losing its independence, Naxos was compelled to renounce forever all diplomatic relations with other states and to accept a constitution conformable to Athenians' wishes. The treatment of this ally served as a precedent for future cases of rebellion. Revolt of Thasos, 465-463 A few years afterward, Thasos revolted. This island had long possessed mines on the opposite coast of Thrace, from which it drew a considerable income. The Athenians had lately intruded within its district, and the dispute thus arising led to the rebellion. Simon besieged the island, and after two years the Thasians gave up their claim to the mines on the mainland, surrendered their fleet, dismantled their walls, and accepted the tribute imposed by the Athenians. The crushing of these two rebellions proved the hopelessness of resistance to Athens and the determination of the latter to maintain her control by force. There was injustice in this policy of coercion, yet the employment of some degree of violence was essential to the maintenance of the league. Furthermore, 
there can be no doubt that the welding of the maritime confederacy into an empire under the rule of Athens was in itself advantageous to the population and to Hellas in general. Treaties with individual states. From the beginning, Athens had taken measures to bind individual states close to herself by treaties which regulated judicial cases arising from their commercial relations. In these agreements, the leading city aimed to bring as many of the judicial cases as possible before her own courts, and this effort was seconded by the Ellis themselves, who recognized the superiority of Athenian law. In fact, in a group of states like those of the Confederacy, closely united in commerce, it was a great advantage that a uniform system of law be substituted for the endless variety of local usage. Not only rebellious states accepted constitutions at the dictation of Athens. One by one, she persuaded or forced most of the others to make new treaties with her, which provided for democratic governments and required them to send their more important criminal cases for trial. Naturally, too, all offences against Athens were brought before her courts. As regards mercantile suites, however, the principle seems generally to have prevailed that the case should be heard in the state where the contract was made. There was little uniformity in these treaties, however, but the general tendency was less federative than imperial. Progress of Democracy 479-461 While Athens was thus entering upon an imperial policy, she was engaged in making her own government more democratic. The patriotic and efficient conduct of the Aeropagites in supervising the exodus of Xerxes' invasion had given them an ascendancy in public life which they had scarcely known since the time of Solon, but their authority was rapidly undermined by the admission each year of the nine ex-archons appointed by lot, since 487-486, and hence of mediocre talent, and even more by the general advance of democracy. In the opinion of Aristotle, Aristides was chiefly responsible for this development. Afterwards, as the citizen of the Athenian state had acquired confidence and a great quantity of money had accumulated, he advised them to lay hold on the leadership and to come in from the country and live in the city, assuring them that there would be a livelihood for all, some serving in the army, others in garrisons, others attending to administrative work, and that thus they would secure the leadership. Parallel growth of democracy and imperialism. This passage is evidence that Aristides introduced pay for military service and to some extent for official duty, thus making it possible 
for any Athenian, however poor, to take part in public affairs. He, more than any other, therefore, was the founder of the radical democracy. The double object was to furnish subsistence to the populace and to gain a more throughout control of the aliens. Imperialism and democracy were, in fact, correlative, in that the revenue from the empire alone made possible the participation of the Athenian masses in public affairs, and on the other hand, this participation was necessary for the policing and administration of the empire. When circumstances forced the Athenians to govern with a stronger hand, he bade them act as they pleased, for he would take upon himself any guilt of perjury they might incur. The two parties, a clash between Democrats and Conservatives. While there was among the leading statesmen of Athens no difference of opinion as to the treatment of the Confederacy, a sharp line of cleavage was drawn through the group in relation to home politics. Those who favoured the popularization of the Constitution were led by Aristides, the Conservatives by Simon. Inevitably, the latter party clung close to the Peloponnesian League and looked to Sparta as an example and a moral support, whereas the Democrats, understanding the incompatibility of the two states, were ready to break with the Peloponnesian League. Their hands were strengthened by the fact that Sparta gave secret encouragement to rebellion within the Confederacy and stood forth as the champion of particularism, of the complete independence and isolation of the city-states, in opposition to the Athenian efforts at political aggregation. The boldness of Themistocles in opposing Spartan interests at every turn added to envy of a greatness that eclipsed all contemporary politicians, stirred against him a formidable combination headed by Simon, which forced his ostracism, about 472. Political Ferment in Peloponnese The excited statement retired to Argos, whence he travelled through Peloponnese, sowing everywhere the seeds of democracy and of opposition to Sparta. Evidently, he was bent on continuing even in exile his task of weakening Lacedaemon in order to make his own city supreme in Hellas. Shortly before his ostracism, the Arcadians, supported by Argos, had revolted against Sparta, bringing the very existence of the Peloponnesian League into hazard. They were defeated and the Lacedaemonian supremacy was restored, but the general ill-will must have encouraged Themistocles to believe that it was still practicable to undermine the power of Sparta. In this frame of mind, he received news of the plottings of Pausanias, who hoped to rise to supreme power through the emancipation of the Helots. Themistocles may have encouraged this ambition, but the accusation that the great statement ever conspired in thought or act against Athens or Hellas 
is belied by his entire career. Need of a revolution in Lacedaemon The revolution attempted by the Spartan regent was precisely what his country needed to bring her abreast of the general political and social progress of Hellas. It would have maintained and even vastly increased her military strength. But though a general of marked ability, Pausanias was wholly lacking in statesmanship. He disgraced his cause, too, by intriguing to bring Hellas into slavery to the Persian king. Fearing arrest, he fled to a shrine of Athena, and was there walled in by his countrymen, and starved to death. By this violation of the right of sanctuary, the Spartans brought upon themselves a religious curse. The End of Themistocles In his fall, Pausanias dragged Themistocles to ruin. The correspondence of the deceased regent proved that the Athenian statesman had knowledge of his schemes, and this circumstance was made a ground for prosecution, brought by the Athenian Alcmeonide. Despairing of justice, Themistocles avoided arrest by flight. He tried one place of refugee after another, but finding no spot in Hellas to shelter him, he finally passed over to the Persian king. Whatever may have been his promise in exchange for protection, we know that he never raised his hand against his country. Thus passed from the stage of history the greatest of the Greeks in obscurity and disgrace. The Genius of Themistocles No better estimate of his genius could be written than that given by Thucydides. Themistocles was a man whose natural force was unmistakable. This was the quality for which he was distinguished above all other men. From his own native acuteness, and without any study, either before or at the time, he was the ablest judge of the cause to be pursued in a sudden emergency, and could best divine what was likely to happen in the remotest future. Whatever he had in hand, he had the power of explaining to others, and even where he had no experience, he was quite competent to form a sufficient judgment. No one could foresee with equal clearness the good or evil intent hidden in the future. In a word, Themistocles, by natural power of mind and with the least preparation, was, of all men, the best able to extemporize the right thing to be done. To him, in large measure, were due the liberation of Hellas and the greatness of his own city. Democratic Policy of Ephialtes and Pericles From about 472 Aristides could no long have survived the ostracism of Themistocles, but of his end we have no clear knowledge. Their place was taken by Ephialtes, a clear-sighted, incorruptible statesman, supported by a son of Xanthippus, Pericles, who at this time was entering upon his public career. Ephialtes inherited from Aristides the policy of democratizing the constitution, and from Themistocles the conviction that the duty of Athens to herself was to cut loose from Sparta 
in order, unhampered, to make the most of her opportunity in work politics. Simon's opposition In the intervals between his frequent campaigns, Simon was able, by his personal influence, to hold these tendencies in check. The sailors enthusiastically supported the popular admiral who had often led them to victory. The extensive public improvements which he conducted, and which will be described in the following chapter, secured him the vote of a multitude of workmen, while his liberality won a host of clients. With an estate like that of a tyrant, he not only performed his public services brilliantly, but supported many of his fellow demesmen. It was permitted any who wished of the Lassiede to come daily to his house and receive moderate provisions. Furthermore, he left all his fields fenceless, that anyone who pleased might help himself to the fruit. Evidently, the Aropagites too supported him in his conservative Philolaconian policy. By such means, he was able, whenever present at Athens, to control an overwhelming majority in the assembly. Revolt of the Helots, a Messinian war. It was on one of these occasions, shortly after the close of the Thessian campaign, that a crisis came in the relations between Athens and Lacedaemon. Sparta had been afflicted by a terrible earthquake which left but five houses standing and destroyed many of her people. It was still more ominous for the state that the Helots, who had looked Pausanias to deliver them from bondage, and now saw in the earthquake the vengeance of heaven for the Spartan sacrilege committed in connection with his death, revolted and were joined by two Periasic towns. As the majority of Helots were Messenians, the rebellion is known as the Messenian War. The insurgents seized Mount Aethon, and as the Lacedaemonians proved unable to reduce the place by assault or siege, they asked aid of their allies, including the Athenians. When the Lacedaemonian ambassador reached Athens with the request, a vehement debate ensued between Simon and Ephialtes in the assembly as to whether aid should be given in accordance with the existing treaty. The latter strenuously urged his fellow citizens to take advantage of their rival's misfortune and to let the arrogance of Sparta be crushed and trodden in the dust. Whereas Simon as vigorously favoured the motion to send help that Greece might not be lame of one foot or Athens draw her lot without her yoke mate. Simon won and marched to the relief of Sparta with a considerable force of heavy infantry. The departure of these conservatives with their leaders was doubtless welcome to the reformers who forthwith concentrated their attack upon that stronghold of conservatism, the Council of the Areopagus. Ephialtes and his associates proposed and carried a succession of laws which deprived that body of all political functions, transferring them to the Council of 500, the courts and the assembly.
Quarrel between Athens and Lacedaemon, 462. Meanwhile, the expedition of the Athenians to Aethon led to their first open quarrel with the Lacedaemonians. For the latter, not succeeding in storming the place, took alarm at the bold and original spirit of the Athenians. They reflected that the men of Athens were aliens in race, and feared that if they were allowed to remain, they might be tempted by the helots to change sides. They dismissed them, while retaining the other allies. Concealing their mistrust, however, they only explained that they no longer had need for their services. The Athenians returned home in great rage at this insult. Simon at once attempted to undo the political reform accomplished during his absence, but met only with taunts of overfondness of Sparta and for looseness in his private life. As Ephialtes had been assassinated by political enemies, the contest was now between Simon and Pericles. Early in 461, recourse was had to a vote of ostracism, which resulted in the banishment of Simon. Sicily and Italy, 480-461. Gelon and Theron. Meanwhile, the Greeks of Sicily and southern Italy were experiencing political and social changes roughly parallel to the development of older Hellas. The great success of Gelon in dispelling the Carthaginian peril added to the prestige and power of his city. All the Greeks of Sicily now acknowledge his war leadership with the exception of Acrogas and her dependencies, whose ruler Theron remained his close friend and ally. Thus, it was that under the hegemony of Syracuse, there grew up a Sicilian union comparable with the Hellenic League under Lacedaemonian supremacy. Through respect for its military power, the Carthaginians abstained from molesting the Western Greeks for a period of 70 years, 480-409. Notwithstanding internal strife and wars with other Greeks and with the natives of the interior, vast advances were made during this era in material prosperity and in civilization. Growth of Syracuse In far earlier times, the city of Syracuse had outgrown the island of Ortigia and had extended over the neighboring height of Acradina. Gelon greatly increased its population by bringing to it the wealthier inhabitants of neighboring towns settling most of them in Acradina. This quarter is surrounded with strong walls, considerable stretches of which may still be traced. But the population rapidly outgrew the enclosed space, and flourishing suburbs sprang up to the west of Acradina. Gelon connected the island with the mainland by a mole, and established arsenals and barracks for the mercenaries who upheld its power. Not least among his public works is an aqueduct still in use, which supplied the city with excellent water. There yet stands, in good condition in Ortigia, a temple of Athena, now used as a Christian church. It was probably built before Gelon, 
a new era in architecture, however, began with the Battle of Imera. The sale of the vast booty furnished the means, and the victory the inspiration, for the erection of temples and other public works of which we have but slight remains. The tyranny becomes a monarchy. Galen had shown himself utterly unscrupulous in sizing the tyranny and in maintaining his power. Moreover, he had treated the poorest class of conquered towns with rare harshness. The Battle of Imera, however, turned grumblings to gratitude and exalted the tyrant to a champion of Ellas. Of this change in public opinion, Galen availed himself for legitimatizing his rule. Appearing in civilian dress in the midst of an unarmed assembly of citizens, he offered to render an account of his administration. Astonished at this confidence in them, and admiring him for the democratic act, the people unanimously hailed him as their king, their benefactor, and the deliverer of their country. Thereafter, he and his successors in the dynasty were spoken of as kings. An era of peace and of unwanted prosperity now set in. Since Galon's temper had grown as mild as his works were magnificent, the people idolized him while living, and when he died, 478, they erected over him a stately tomb, paying him heroic honors as the founder of their city. Growth of Acragas Meanwhile, Theron, in like manner, was making his city, Acragas, second only to Syracuse, in population, strength and magnificence. In both cities, the public works were erected mostly by slave labor. As spoils of the victory at Himera, the men of Acragas got for their share a great number of captives, with which they enriched their city and the surrounding country. So great was the multitude of their prisoners that many a citizen acquired no less than 500 slaves. Many, too, were retained by the state and employed in cutting stone for the temples of the gods and in constructing aqueducts for the water supply. Theron strongly fortified the city. Along the southern wall, he began building a chain of temples, finished after his death. Among the ruins still extensive, the best preserved is the misnamed Temple of Concordia, a graceful little shrine that has not in fact revealed the name of its deity. The buildings of both cities were of limestone, whose exposed surfaces were stuccoed and painted. Necessarily, they wanted their fine beauty of marble, and they fell short of the attic standards of taste, Yet, the two great Sicilian cities had attractions of their own, a richness of material life and a splendor of power that inspired the genius of Pindar. In beauty, Acragas was the eye of Sicily, lover of splendor, most charming among the cities of men, haunt of Persephone. Syracuse was the precinct of warrior Ares, of iron-armed men and steeds, the nursing place divine. Hieron, 478-467 
Italy. Galen was succeeded by his brother Haron, in whose reign Sicily came into closer relations with Italy. Undismayed by the overthrow of their allies, the Etruscans were now bent upon the complete subjugation of Campania. When Cume found herself threatened by them on land and sea, she called on Heron for aid. His fleet came and inflicted a mortal blow on the Etruscan naval power, 474. With good hope could Pindar now pray the son of Cronos to grant that the Phoenician and the Tuscan war cry be hushed at all, since they have beheld it the calamity of their ships that befell them before Cume, even how they were smitten by the captain of the Syracusans, who, from their swift ships, hurled their youth into the sea, to deliver Hellas from the bondage of the oppressor. Henceforth, the Etruscan power, which had menaced all Italy, declined. The Latins, and especially Rome, their chief city, were friendly toward the Hellenes, and were adopting from them many elements of culture. With the Sabellian peoples, too, of the interior, the Greeks were long at peace, and these conditions made possible the accumulation of wealth in the Hellenic states, to the advantage of the useful and fine arts, philosophy, and the comforts and pleasures of life. Some of the states, as Cume and Regium, were under tyrannies like those of Sicily. Locri and Tarentum were aristocratic, whereas most of the Achaean cities were ruled by Pythagorean fraternities. From tyranny to republic. The spirit of liberty and equality, which was working its spell upon the minds of older Hellas, lived, too, among the Western Greeks. The ability and beneficence of the great rulers of Acragas and Syracuse guaranteed the survival of monarchy in Sicily during their lives. In fact, this form of government received a new luster from Heron's court, which had become the most splendid centre of culture in Hellas, the gathering place of her most gifted poets, philosophers and artists. It is clear, however, that both he and Theron had their troubles with discontented subjects. After their deaths, their successors, men of base character and mean ability, were swept from their thrones by the rising tide of liberty. Before the end of 466, all the Sicilian states were free and had adopted governments more or less democratic. Under the new regime, the cities tended to political isolation, yet acknowledged the moral leadership of Syracuse. About the same time, a democratic wave swept over Italy, converting tyrannies and aristocracies into more popular form of government. The Pythagoreans, however, maintained themselves for some years longer. Troubles of the Republics 463-461 In the new republics, great confusion arose over the respective rights of the old citizens and those admitted by the tyrants. 
The trouble was complicated by the fact that the tyrants had arbitrarily transferred much valuable real estate from the former to the latter class. Civil war raged over all Sicily between these conflicting parties. The old citizens triumphed, and in 461 a general Sicilian congress, meeting at Syracuse, settled the agrarian controversy. The old citizens were restored to their properties, and the others were compensated by lands to be granted them as colonists in the interior of the island. The republics were now firmly established, and though now wholly free from internal conflicts, Sicily entered upon a new and greater prosperity. End of chapter 12